Welcome to The Search Podcast, where we have conversations about the big questions of God and life. I'm your host, Blaine Larson, and today it's part three of Evidence from Israel, our little mini-series here. And I'm very excited for you to hear from my very special guest. And we're going to do something a little different today, uh, something we've never done on this podcast. We're going to play you a recording of a talk that was given by our guest. And I've invited John Hopper, who's been with me these last couple weeks, to give us a little insight into who we're going to hear from. So, John, can you set up what we're going to listen to? Yeah. So, uh, if you've listened to the last couple of podcasts, you know that uh, I went to Israel and uh, with Don Barkley of Search as well. And we went to uh, um, just everything from uh, the sites along the uh, Mediterranean Sea up to Galilee and down in Jerusalem. And we had the opportunity to go on this trip with a, a guide named Shai, um, who is going to be. Uh, Featured here in this in this podcast, so uh, Shai Nahani is a he's a, um, a tour guide there in Israel, and he's extraordinarily well versed in in archaeological findings. Um, uh, he's a um, he was born in Israel. His uh, uh, grandmother was uh, uh, um, in prison camps during you know the World War II. Those kinds of things. He was served in the military, so he has all of that kind of background. But he's well versed in archaeology and in geopolitics and those kinds of things. And um, he was just a remarkable guide for us in terms of giving us insight into the places that we visited. Um, and and I think um, what's great is is that Shai gives us a perspective that's um, sort of outside of of a Christian perspective. So Shai's not a Christian. So, um, but I brought him to Houston soon after our trip to to give a talk there because what Shai has recognized is that the archaeological findings keep supporting the historical nature of the Bible. And so it's not just as Christians, um, as you've heard sort of Don and I speak in the last couple of podcasts that are saying, hey, these finds do support the biblical record, it's even those outside of or the Christian camp that are recognizing that as well. And so um, I brought Cheyenne. He spoke there in Houston. We were able to record that. And so your listeners are going to really have a treat today to sort of hear some of the archaeological findings that are supporting what uh, what we see in the Bible. Well, thank you for the introduction, John. Everybody, uh, buckle up. It's going to be a fun ride the next 30, 40 minutes or so, and here's Shai. Um, first of all, good morning. It's really cool to see faces that I actually know in the crowd, so it's really nice, especially considering the fact that we just met a few weeks ago, so it's really cool. Um, secondly, I'm a tour guide by profession. This is what I do for a living and where the space in which I normally operate is outside. I, I have to admit that I'm very comfortable leading a group through an archaeological site or through a city, and I become incredibly uncomfortable when I stand in this situation like this. <laughs> so I want to say this very clearly, because from experience, when I say it at the beginning, it helps me get more comfortable. So <laughs> this is for me in that respect. Um, look, we're, we're going to talk for a little bit. I'm going to run through a few significant finds that we thought that would be significant in respect of understanding the subject matter. But there's, it's, it's just important to have it out. It's, there's so much out there. And archaeology can be very, very boring. 
It's all a matter how you approach the subject matter. And when you dig into the specifics, there's a reason for which you do it. Obviously, you're supposed to get to a point, but a lot of people kind of lose you along the way. And the focus is not the specifics so much as what does it mean, and how does this correlate with what we're interested in. So that's what I'm going to try and do today. I'm going to let go of some of the specifics to be able to look at the bigger picture and what these pieces mean. We've chosen eight or nine pieces to talk about in total. I'm going to try and do this within a certain time frame. But if, if you have questions, even as I'm going through it, I'm perfectly happy with you just raising your hand and let me know so I can do it. Um, something is clarification. So I know we have the Q&A section at the end, but if you had a question that is imperative to be dealt with at that particular moment, I'm comfortable with that. This is the setting in which I normally operate. And these guys know it's, it's very comfortable for me. So the subject we're dealing with is really the history and archaeology of the Bible. And the reason for that is, what does that mean? It's great to have an archaeological dig. We have an average between 300 and 330 archaeological digs actively performed in Israel on a yearly basis. It doesn't mean that we open 300 to 330 new sites every single year, but we are continuously digging, and we're continuing digs that could be already a decade in, two decades in, four decades in, but we're continuing. Every year we get a lease to continue that dig, but on average we're dealing with 300 to 330 sites per year. And the question should be why. There's a lot of money to be put into archaeological digs. It uh, translates into millions and millions of dollars per dig. If it's a complicated site, you're going to pay a lot of money to be able to dig there. And the question should be why. Right? Why are we doing this? What's, what's the agenda behind digging? And why have we become obsessed with all these dusty, bizarre little artifacts? Like what you see on the screen right now. It's the hand of Eli Shukron, one of the most famous Israeli archaeologists at the moment. He dug through the areas of what we call the City of David and the area of the Davidson Center, and since has retired from being an archaeologist and has become a tour guide, is actually guiding some of these sites for groups such as yourself. So what he's holding in his hand is this itty-bitty little round thing made of gold, and as you well know, or I assume, right, gold doesn't tarnish. When you find a piece of gold, it's going to shine in gold. If it was silver, it would look black. If it was copper, it might look green, but gold doesn't change. When he found that itty bitty little thing, and I chose this picture on purpose because it shows you the reference. So you can see this is about the size of your thumbnail. It was super exciting. Why is it going to be so exciting? What's the big deal? How is this going to change my world, your world, everybody else's world? And why is this so important is basically the focus of this conversation, right? So what do we get from this? But in order to get to Eli Shukron and his find, have to dig back a little bit. The whole point of this is I'm going to read through the Bible, and I'm going to see, or I'm going to try and see as an archaeologist, if I was an archaeologist, does this match what I'm finding, or doesn't it? If it matches, then the Bible is accurate. Is that, is that what it means? Or does it mean that potentially I misunderstood the text? Does it mean that I may have dug in the wrong place? Or does it mean that I dug and I haven't found, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, I simply didn't find it? That's a question that these guys are dealing with. So the first thing I chose is basically a piece um, that's talking about the moment when Joshua is about to enter the land. They're about to cross the Jordan River, and they get this tribal 
borders, these tribal borders. Every tribe is going to get a piece of land that they have to go out and conquer it. That's what the Bible tells us. And the Bible will continue and tell us that they manage. Some of these tribes will manage to conquer exactly what they were told to conquer. Others will fail miserably. They will have to change their location. As an example, the tribe of Dan will not be successful in the conquering of the tribal land that was given to them. And you can see them, they're basically on the coast, pretty much above the Philistine territory, which have been Gat and Akron and Gaza and Ashkelon and Ashdod and so forth. And they were supposed to capture and settle along the area of Jaffa and what nowadays we call Tel Aviv. And they were unsuccessful. And so ultimately, the Bible tells us that they cross through the other tribal lands and they get to the northern portion of the country where they settle outside what is known as the promised land. Right? Ultimately, they had to change. But the Bible is telling us specifically where these tribes are supposed to go. As an archaeologist, how do I approach this? What it is that I can find in an archaeological dig that is going to prove to me that 12 tribes entered the land at a specific moment in time, conquered it, captured it, and changed it, sat there for a duration of time that is going to ultimately change the layout of the land. What am I going to be able to find? Archaeologists focused over time on three different significant elements. The first one is a style of a building. This is the most technical I go, by the way, in this whole introduction, so bear with me. I told you archaeology can be boring, right? Specific style of a house. For those of you who have been to Israel um, with me or with somebody else, this is a picture of the city of David that you're looking at here. This is called Area G. It's the area right below the palace that is known by Elat Mazar as David's Palace. If you haven't been to Israel, then you know, one day you will go, you'll see it for yourself, it's going to be there. Nobody's going to change this, it's going to look exactly the same. And the room um, that was found there is the design of it is what you see on top. It's called the four-roomed house. It's very technical. It's basically a house that has four, four chambers or four rooms. But we find these houses starting in the 10th century BC, going all the way to the 8th century BC, in the very specific locations. And only locations that match the description of the kingdom of Israel and Judea, the unified kingdom. So within this time frame in which we're hearing about the tribes entering the land, conquering the land, settling the land, and ultimately the time in which we find David rising to power, becoming king of Jerusalem, we're going to find a change in the style of construction. And that style of construction matches only the perimeter of what we're calling the unified kingdom, which means the kingdom of the northern portion, the southern portion, both what we later on will call Israel and Judea. Okay, so that's one. Second thing they found was a specific type of a pot, or a vase if you want to call it that way. Um, I know this one looks broken. It's actually one of the better preserved ones that we've managed to find. And you see a style of an instrument or tool that is used. The only place this is found is within, again, the perimeters of what we're calling the unified kingdom between a certain period of time. So both of these elements, the house and the pot, would match the specifications in which the tribes are settling down, in which David, when he becomes king, rules over the 12 tribes. You know, he's the first king to ever rule over 12 tribes. It happens about 3,000 years ago when he rises to power and he's going to ultimately change and Solomon will take over. Solomon will also rule over 12 tribes. And after Solomon, the kingdom will split apart. At the timeline of Solomon's son, the northern kingdom will separate from the southern kingdom and will have what we call the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judea in the south. In reference to the house and the pot, we're looking at the unified kingdom still 
We find them all over the territory of the unified kingdom, specific moment in time, specific style. And they're different than what we'll find in a different period of time or in different areas that surround this particular moment, okay? So, so far these two. The, probably the most significant one, or what archaeologists are basing this claim on, is the fact that you all know these creatures, right? They're very cute, they're very pink, they're very tasty, so I'm told, yeah? <laughs> I, love, I love taking groups to Israel because, you know, you, you show up to breakfast and then everybody's very, it's, it's very shocking in a way, right? There's no, there's no ham, there's no bacon, what do you mean? What do you guys eat for breakfast? Well, you know, we have cheese and vegetables and stuff of the sort. We don't have meat at all at breakfast because of the kosher laws. You can't have meat and dairy together. Hotels will not serve it to you. But ultimately, these beautiful creatures, um, we find less than 1% of pig bones in sites that we're going to associate with the unified kingdom. That's a big shift. It means that there's a change in the style or the culture of your diet. They're not consuming pork. Who doesn't consume pork? Everybody in their right mind consumes pork, right? It's tasty, but it's not kosher. We see a definition, or the beginning of a definition of a different people, if you want, by the association of these three elements together. Did you follow me so far? If you didn't, it's okay, and if you did, that's great. I know it's early. I know I'm having a cup of coffee while you're not. So <laughs> I understand this completely. The point I'm trying to make is that sometimes archaeology is easy, sometimes it's going to be very complicated. But when we're looking at the entrance of a newly defined people into a land, which are the 12 tribes entering the land of Canaan, then these are the three significant markers that we are able to identify the entrance of a new people into a realm uh, and territory in, in, in the area of what we're looking at. That's, that's the way archaeologists are looking at this. 3,000 years ago, that's the way we're researching this, okay? So that's one. When you go to Jerusalem, everybody goes to the city of David. City of David is one of the most commonly visited sites in Israel. Actually, it, it competes with the site of Masada in respect to popularity. Uh, between two and three million people would visit the City of David and the Masada, and they would compete who got the most amount of visitors on a yearly basis pre-COVID, right? COVID changed the rules of the game. After COVID, I don't know yet. We don't have the statistics. But before COVID, it was one of the most commonly visited sites in Israel. And the reason for that is because this is the oldest portion of Jerusalem. It's an area in which you can see with your own eyes, 3,000 years ago, the area in which David ruled. For those of you who were with us in Israel, you know this, you saw it. For those of you who were on the trips, I am willing to bet that you were there. It's uncommon for a trip not to go to the city of David. I chose these two maps to show you two different things. The one on the left, Right, the one in this case that's closest to me, is showing you a, de a definition of the land, of the specific area of the kingdom of David, what the capital would have looked like in our estimation, in between two valleys. So if you look at this map, on the right there's a valley, not the right picture, but the left picture, right? Focus on the left picture. There's a valley, the area on the right of that valley is going to be what we call Mount of Olives. On the left of the perimeter of the city, there's going to be another valley. On the left of that valley, there's going to be what we call the Western Hill, or Mount Zion today. But in the time of David, this is what we're estimating was the city, based on the archaeological finds. At the very top, we're going to find the area of the temple grounds, because this is basically Mount Moriah. So you're looking at Mount Moriah from the south, at the very top is going to be the temple grounds that were built by Solomon. 
Now, if you look at the map on the right, you see this weird mix of today versus 2,000 years ago. What I'm trying to show you is something that everybody visits. We all say this is the city of David. We all go to the Northern Palace and we say this is the Palace of David. Eilat Mazal, the archaeologists claimed that. And the question that arose pretty early on in the 70s was, who is David and where he was? Yes, please. Itty bitty little thing. If you're looking at the old city of Jerusalem today, the old city of Jerusalem today is about 0.6 square miles. The entire size of the old city. 0.6 square miles, it's nothing. Right? When you really think about it. City of David is significantly smaller than that. So it really is a very small piece of land. But it's the area that is defined topographically by the valleys which means it's separated from the surrounding hills. And more importantly, it's on the southern slope of what we're calling Mount Moriah, which means top of Mount Moriah, binding of Isaac, by Jewish tradition, creation of the universe. Ultimately, later on, is going to be the place of worship as the temple is structured at the very top of that mountain. So this is going to be one of the most significant places. But the question that arose was, was David, this is, by the way, the area of the city of David on the other map. And the question was, was David real? There was an argument about this. Can we prove that David existed? Do I have any physical elements that are going to show me that David was a real guy and not just something that somebody wrote in some book? And I'm saying this this way on purpose because it was a real argument. Did David exist? If he did exist, was he the big king that the Bible hints at? Did he actually unify the 12 tribes under his rule? Or was he, as some of the universities at the time were saying, a small-time Bedouin sheik that ruled over this dusty little village called Shalem, what we're calling Jerusalem? How do you go about proving that? It's a big question. So you can approach this in a variety of different manners. You can look for specific styles of construction within the areas of what we call the unified kingdom. And we have found a specific pillar top that matches his timeline um, in the perimeter of the unified kingdom, so on and so on. That's great. It's great, but it's boring. I mean, look at yourself for a second. I was talking about a specific pot and a specific house. And only when I got to the pigs, we got some sort of an interested reaction from you. <laughs> Uh, once we started thinking about ham and bacon, pink little pigs running around, kosher laws, people all of a sudden became engaged, all right? If I'm continuing to talk about these dusty little things, nobody's really paying attention to that extent. Not, this is not you, I'm talking in general. It's boring, all right? I want to find something more substantial. It's not going to be enough for me to find all these supportive evidence. I need something that's really crucial and can 100% identify to me the existence of David. We didn't have it. It didn't exist. There was not a physical element that mentioned David by name found ever until this was found. This was found at a site at the northern portion of the country, an area called the Archaeological Mount of Dan. If you remember, by the way, for those who know me, everything I say is said on purpose because it leads to something else. Right? I build a lot of times about what I say. So I mentioned the tribe of Dan being unsuccessful trying to capture the area of Jaffa and Tel Aviv, having to cross through the biblical land, and they ultimately reached the northern portion, above the tribal portion, and they settled there. That's known as the Archaeological Mount of Dan. And in the Archaeological Mount of Dan, as they were researching the area of the gate, 
they found this bizarre looking stone that is basically broken apart into three different pieces and they start looking at it. It's known as the Stella of Dan. And you see on the right portion, it has two pieces. By the way, this is ancient Hebrew script, unlike today's script. Today, um, Hebrews, Jews are using Aramaic script to write and read in Hebrew. We've changed our lettering completely. This is ancient Hebrew script. And we find an upper portion mentions the king of Israel. And the lower portion that is you know, highlighted for you talks about the house of David. It's a big deal. Because ultimately Dan was conquered by a foreign power. And this was placed by a foreign power as a sign of their dominance. They took pride in the fact that they conquered Dan from the house of David and the king of Israel. And they wanted to make sure that everybody knew it. They placed it at the entrance to the city that they have just conquered. Why is this important? It's important because, one, this is happening a few hundred years after David has already passed away. Two, it's a foreign entity that is choosing to mock David when they're referencing to the area that they've just conquered. If it was a Jewish uh, congregation that had the palette upon which David was mentioned, we would say, you know, that's, uh, that's myth or it might be myth, because they just want to connect to the storyline that they've been told, they mark out David. It's a foreign power that is identifying this area that was conquered as part of the kingdom of the unified house of David. It's a big deal. And even this, when it was found, there were arguments about this. In, in English, it's very clear. You see David, it's D-A-V-I-D, right? But in Hebrew, it's actually three letters. It's Dalid, Vav Dalid, only three. And without the markers that go below the letters, you don't know necessarily how to pronounce it. It could be David, it could be Dod, it could be Dud, it could be a variety of different things. Dud is a water boiler, Dod is an uncle, David is, is David. And even then, the German scholars were saying, this is not David. This is the house of the water boiler, this is the house of uncle, you know. There comes a moment in which you need to understand that you know, there's, there's um, sensible doubt, and then there's ridiculousness. I mean, that, that borders on the ridiculous. If I was a foreign king and I conquered the place, I wouldn't say, I conquered the house of the water boiler. <laughs> Who cares? I conquered the house of David, that's a big deal. I mean, why would I waste the time to carve it on a rock if it was the house of water boiler? Who cares? So this is the first time we, we find the name of David mentioned anywhere outside the Bible. Now, I've, I've been doing this for a while now as a guide, um, and I've come to realize that if you come from a place of belief, this doesn't matter, right? You don't need a piece of stone that has the name of David on it to believe that David was a real person. You either accept the Bible or you don't accept the Bible. That's a place of belief, that's a personal element. But if you come out of a place of doubt or lack of belief in that respect, or you just don't necessarily agree with everything the Bible is saying, then this all of a sudden becomes very, very significant. It's gonna hint at the fact that what the Bible is mentioning in reference to where, what, how, 3,000 years ago, at least in this respect, would be accurate. That's a big deal. It's not a small thing. You guys okay so far? All right. You can tell me the truth, it's all right. 
we've got a map on the left, the same map that you saw earlier of the tribal lands. Look at the northern portion, the very top. That's where we find Tel Dan. That's where the stella was found. And look at the lower portion, which is the other circled piece at the bottom. That's Beersheba. That's where I actually physically live. And it's mentioned that Solomon's kingdom is between Dan and Beersheba. So it's interesting. We have at least one piece of evidence that tells us that David was in fact in control of Dan, or at least identified by a foreign power as the one who is in control of Dan a few hundred years before they conquered it. But how do I go proving that his area of control actually spreads to where they're claiming it did in the Bible? It's a big question, it's not a small question. All right, so we have David and Dan, right? We have somebody mentioning David and Dan. But how do I know that his actual areas of control were really from Dan to Beersheba? So we find altars. The lower one is in Beersheba. The upper one is a computerized recreation of the site in Dan. So it's not the real thing. We've not found this. But that's what archaeologists estimated they look like. We do find the base of it in Beersheba. We did not find it looking like this either. We found it dismantled and hidden within the walls of the city in pieces. When the archaeologists were digging, as they were taking apart the walls of the city, they found specific stones that were different. And they were started putting them together, they got to this shape. So imagine, you know, massive piece of Lego, and they put back together. The real pieces that stood out were these horns, four-horned altar, as the Bible suggests, the design of the altar should be from, it should be from unchiseled stone. Turns out these altars were dismantled roughly 2,700 years ago, but they existed. We found three in total. One is in Dan, one is in Beersheba, and one is at a site that almost none of you will ever visit when you come to Israel. It's called Arad. It's kind of out of the regular tourism sites. But we found three in total, only three. Just what happens, we found one in Dan, one in Beersheb and one in Arad, which means we find the same style of worship in the very northern portion of what we're calling the kingdom of David and the very southern portion of the same kingdom, same style. And both of them dismantled at the same timeline. And then the question should be, why were they dismantled 2,700 years ago, or the seventh century BC? And the answer is very easy. 2,700 years ago, a king called Hezekiah, that is from the line of David, that is ruling over Jerusalem, or the kingdom of Judea, passes this law, a reform. And he says, no more altars outside Jerusalem. That's what the Bible tells us. He gave an order that there will be no more altars outside Jerusalem. And within the time frame of a few decades, we see the dismantling of all the altars that we found outside Jerusalem. Why did he do that? Different reasons will apply. Maybe he once centered worship in Jerusalem so that everybody would have to come to Jerusalem for political power because at this point the nation of Israel is separate and they don't necessarily abide by his rule and he wants to collect taxes from the northern population that he doesn't actually control. That could be one reason. A second reason, which is likely, is the fact that people are worshiping at these altars foreign gods and they want to make sure that this doesn't happen anymore. They want to control where you worship, how you worship, what you worship, and so forth and so on. Yes, please. Well, 
Well, yeah, it could be. But at the end of the day, how do we see it being acted by people? At the land, the Bible tells us that King Hezekiah passes this law. It is very likely a statement that he is given, a directive given by somebody else. In this case, it could be God. But we're looking at the actions of people. I'm not trying to prove that God exists through this. And I mean this in the most sincere way, not sarcasm at all. I can't. It's not my place. It's not going to be the focus of this conversation in that respect. But who are the people that are playing around in this playing grounds? What are their agendas is the question that I'm really asking. And how do I see it when I look at the archaeological finds? Does that make sense? So you're very likely true. It could be that God told him through a prophet that this is what he needs to do. And he goes out and says, this is what we're doing. Right? Could be that too. But I don't know. Unless you know something that I don't. I mean, and I'm happy to listen. So this is, this is what we're looking at. So we have elements that are proving to us, not just that there's a different power, a different people entering the land. We have also the mentioning of a very specific king and the perimeters of his kingdom through archaeological finds. So going back to the city of David, because we've been talking about David this entire time, we're going to shift to my next favorite character, who is Hezekiah. So just to clarify, David's city was very small. Going back to your question, it's about to be enlarged. It's about to be enlarged significantly. And the northern kingdom of Israel rebels against the Assyrians. In other words, refuses to pay them taxes. The Assyrians come by force, destroy the northern kingdom, right? destroy the center of control, and um, basically take it over. The north is conquered by Assyria. This happens roughly 2,700 years ago, 7th century. At this time, we see, oh, in the Bible it's mentioned that people are fleeing the north, and a lot of them ultimately will settle down in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will enlarge. People will start settling down on what we call the western hill, which is left of the city of David. And King Hezekiah is about to do something very similar. He's about to stop paying taxes to the Assyrians. But he knows that the Assyrians are going to come, and so he enlarges the city by adding a wall that surrounds and adds in the western hill. We've actually found that wall. We found it, we see it when we walk around Jerusalem. It's possible to see it in numerous places. Some of the current walls of Jerusalem are built over those foundations. We know the wall was built. We understand the logic. And so the city of Hezekiah changes in its perimeter. It just adds an additional portion to it. But how do I know that Hezekiah lived? So we found this bula. I know that's a foreign um, terminology for many. A bula is a piece of clay that has a seal imprint embedded into it and was hardened artificially by fire. It doesn't necessarily have to do that, but otherwise it wouldn't survive throughout the generations. This bula specifically is the bula of King Hezekiah. So we find physical proof of his existence, or at least physical proof of somebody marking a document under his name. Does this prove that Hezekiah was alive? Not necessarily. But it does prove that somebody was using his name from a um, control aspect. However, the Bible does mention a few other things that Hezekiah does. One of the things that is mentioned is the fact that he creates a tunnel, that we will understand it as a tunnel that brings the water of the Gihon Spring into Jerusalem, and he creates a pool in the city. Why does he do that? Again, as preparation for the Assyrian siege. The Assyrians are coming. He wants to make sure 
that when the Assyrians arrive and besiege the city, the city will not fall. The city will have a um, long-standing water supply and will not have to surrender itself for lack of water. That's the reasoning for this. For those who have been to Israel and walked through the city of David, you walk through this tunnel. This is the water tunnel. This is what we call Hezekiah's tunnel that was crafted into the mountain 2,700 years ago by hand, by two teams of diggers, who actively start at the source of the Gihon Spring, which is the external source of water to Jerusalem, and from the direction they want the water to come to, and they dig by hand on the ground and somehow miraculously actually meet. All right? It's a very big feat. And you can see here where it would go from to. Right? He brings the water from outside the city to inside the city to defend it. And we found a plaque pretty much in the middle of this tunnel saying something along the lines of, as the diggers are chiseling towards one another, we start hearing our co-workers on the other side, and as the axe penetrates through the wall, we see the other team, and so on and so on. This is an inscription that was placed there by the teams of diggers. This is in Hebrew, this is in Old Hebrew, and this is in English, right? If you want to actually read it, basically they're telling you what they did. These are the people that did it, who are sharing with you what it is that they have done. But um, the cool thing about it, if you look left of the inscription, you find that area with steps in, the, in what I'm showing you. That's the pool. So we've seen the tunnel. We actually see the pool. The tunnel leads to the pool. I know it doesn't look like a pool. Take my word for it. It's a corner of a pool, right? I exhausted you completely. <laughs> Too much. All right. <laughs> so this is the inscription, right? Hezekiah does what the Bible tells us he's doing. Some of these things are incredibly significant, clear to understand their meaning, some of them are not. Have you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Lost Scrolls, the Forbidden Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Scrolls of the Judean Desert, you know, oldest biblical manuscripts ever found in the world. Kind of a big deal, right? It's basically uh, scrolls that have the biblical text dated about 2,200 years ago, and we all look at them and say, this is the oldest biblical manuscript we've ever found. And we all say something wrong. Because the oldest biblical manuscript that was ever found is actually what you see on the screen right now. It's a piece of hammered silver that is originally about this size, between my fingers. When Gabi Barkayi, who was the gentleman at the top, found it, very famous archaeologist in Israel again, these guys become almost like celebrities within Israeli, it's an exaggeration, within the Israeli tour guiding industry, not Israeli culture. <laughs> that was an exaggeration. I'm on, I so, Gabi, I apologize, you know. That's the reality of it, nobody really. So, Originally, it looks like the butt of a cigarette. Right? Very, very small. It's a piece of hammered silver that was rolled up. They found two of them. These are dated approximately 7th century BC, which means that they would predate the Dead Sea Scrolls by 500 to 600 years. It's the oldest biblical manuscript ever found. That's the real thing. It has on it something that you're familiar with. It's known as the priestly benediction. Right? You're familiar with it. Even if this name doesn't mean anything right now, then this will seem familiar, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and give you peace. 
That's what it says on it. And when we're looking at these inscriptions, these inscriptions were found at burial sites, Jewish burial sites, that date to the, 20, to the 7th century BC or 2700 years ago, and you can see it on the right-hand portion of the screen. This is a burial site. People would have given this or placed it next to their loved ones as something to give themselves peace in a way that their loved ones will be cared for in the afterlife, continuation, after death, I don't know, whatever the interpretation might be. But this is the oldest biblical manuscript. So we find something that is in existence in your Bibles today. If you open a Bible today, the text will match word per word what is hammered into silver 2,700 years ago. Why is this important? It's important because it shows us that the Bible does not change. It is the same text, not changed throughout the generations. Even though today we're printing it and not writing it by hand. Even though we've edited it and made it into a book shape. Even though we've chosen to edit out some of the scrolls that probably were followed originally 2,000, 3,000 uh, years ago, the text that we do follow did not change. It's the same text. It's a big deal. Because if it did change, then it would suggest uh, manipulation of the text. It would suggest that we get involved in it and we alter it to fit what we wanted to say. This has not changed. And this brings us to the Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, which is, as everybody says, the oldest biblical manuscripts ever found, right? They are, with the exception of what I just showed you. These are really cool. Like, legitimately very cool. If you've ever seen them, you know. They're very, very cool. These are the long pieces of scroll written on animal hides that have survived for over 2,000 years, hidden in caves in the desert. It's a big deal. Because when you find them, they're not the Bible that we know of today. If you reach under your seats, you'll find books. I can only assume that some of these books are Bibles. There could be prayer books too. But some of them would be Bibles. And if we look at the Old Testament portion of your Bible, some of it will match this perfectly. The text you're reading today is English, or if you're going to a different church, it might be in a different language. But if you open an original Hebrew Bible, then the text will match. The difference is going to be in where we place the dot, which paragraph becomes the next chapter. How did we choose to edit the text in respect to its appearance? In addition, the rabbinical movement ultimately chose which scrolls will be kept and which scrolls will be edited out. As an example, the book of Yehudit, the book of Ben Sirah, and others were not ultimately included in what we're calling the canonized Bible today. Canonized Jewish Bible is the same as the canonized Old Testament in most Christian denominations. It changes, there are some changes, but ultimately this is the same. And the Dead Sea Scrolls show us, again, that the text has not changed. It's not just that priestly benediction. It's the Bible, physical Bible, has not changed. What does that prove to me? It proves to me that this text is incredibly important. We've been copying it by hand for thousands of years, and yet we've managed to copy it with a 99.9% .9 accuracy. The chances for that are not really good. I mean, let's be honest. There's a more a larger likelihood that we would have made significant mistakes as we copied it. Just changing one letter in the text would have incredible meaning. Let me clarify what I mean. In, in Hebrew and in Judaism, we don't necessarily use uh, numbers in our text. We use letters. The letters have numerical values. 
the fourth letter of the alphabet would mean four. Dalet is four. But the 22nd letter of the alphabet, which is resh, would mean 200. And the difference in the shaping is, is nothing. Both of them are two lines right, that connect to one another. The difference is going to be ultimately that this line has a little bit of a thing coming out the side, or doesn't it? As a scribe is copying it, it's enough that it makes an itty bitty little mistake. The meaning of the quantity changes dramatically from 4 to 200, or vice versa. One letter difference is going to change the meaning of a text. And yet we've managed to copy it for 2,000 years without changes. Something very peculiar about the situation. So Dead Sea Scrolls are still being studied. Um, they are telling us a lot about what's going on in the ancient culture of the biblical study. As an example, we found, we, I was not involved, I'm just talking. But they found numerous copies of the scrolls of Genesis, which is kind of a big deal when you think about it. And they found almost the same quantities of the scroll of Jubilee. Are you familiar with the book of Jubilee? Why would you? It's not included in your Bible anymore. If you opened an Ethiopian Christian Bible, though, it would be included. So the Ethiopian Christians have the Book of Jubilee as part of their Bible. We don't. It was excluded from the canonized Bible by the rabbinical movement, and most churches adopted into it. So the Book of Jubilee is no longer included, so why would we know it? But apparently, 2,000, 2,200 years ago, they were looking at the Book of Jubilee. I don't know if in the same significance or similar significance as they did at the Book of Genesis. We changed our appreciation of what is important. The text didn't change. So when it comes to what happens, we chose, in a way, to edit that portion out. Why is a good question. It has to do with our moral values, moral understandings, um, our definition of right and wrong. What do we want to share with our children? How do we want to educate our communities? What do we want to include, exclude? As an example, the book of Yehudit tells us of a storyline of a woman that seduces this war chief, and basically after he falls asleep, she murders him. Jewish woman saving a Jewish congregation by doing this. But the rabbinical movement probably thought, you know, this is not a great example of how we should act. Let's let it out, you know, throw it out. It's not what I want to push. Let's push something else, a different way of conduct. But back in the day, Yehudit was observed, was written, was rewritten, was studied by these congregations. So again, this just tells us a little bit about who these people are. You remember these? I showed you one of them earlier. I called them Abula, right? So you take a scroll, you write on a scroll, right? A letter to your friend or a document that is going to the king. You roll up the scroll, you tie the scroll up with a piece of string, not velvet or whatever it is that is on the picture over there. I couldn't find a better picture. And then you take a wet piece of clay, you put it there, and with your signet ring, you make an imprint into it. Make sense? Then you send it. It reaches your counterparty, in this case, John, right? And he receives my letter, and he removes the bula and the string, unrolls the scroll, reads it. Important, keeps it, not important. Turns it over, writes something else on the other side, and sends it to somebody else for a different reason. But if it's important, it will be re-rolled replaced in the string, and placed on a shelf. What happens when the city of Jerusalem burns to these scrolls? The scroll becomes supposed to mark ash, by the way. It's supposed to be ash. 
a scroll will become ash. The string will become thank you. And the bula hardens. Something that was not supposed to be kept is found. I know this is very technical, I told you. Sometimes you have to go through the technical aspects to understand why the significance of things is there, right? Now, I promise you, every piece of information I shared with you is, has a meaning right now, or at least is leading to something. These two bulas were found at the city of David. And one of them is Gdalia, son of Pashchur. I know my pronunciation of the names is different than what you would call it. You would say Gedaliya, son of Pashchur, and Jehokal, son of Shelemiah, right? But it's really Gdalia, son of Pashchur, Gdalia ben Pashchur, and Yochal ben Shalmiah. It doesn't matter how we pronounce the names. The names appear in the biblical text very clearly. In Jeremiah 38, Jeremiah is preaching at the walls of Jerusalem. He's basically telling the people they have no chance of survival. Right? The Babylonians are going to come. They're going to destroy the city. It's not like the Assyrians. God has already made his decision. This city will fall. It will burn. And you have only one way in which you can survive this. Go surrender to the Babylonians, beg them to let you go, maybe you will be able to survive. Good for the morale of the city, yes? Not so much. And so three ministers who operate during the time of King Zedekiah, again, a descendant of Hezekiah, a descendant of David, go to the king and ask permission to arrest this annoying Jeremiah, who's, you know, preaching the bad news in the city. They're mentioned by name. And they do arrest Jeremiah, that's what the text tells us. And Jeremiah spends his time in a water cistern as he hears the city burning above him, right? He hears it. Sedekiah, by the way, which is the king at the time, will be captured by the Babylonians as he tries to flee through a cave. And as punishment for the um, betrayal or the revolt, his eyes will be gouged out after he witnesses the execution of his sons. So the last thing he will see in his lifetime will be the execution of his sons. That's the punishment. And then he's left alive to forever remember this. I mean, think about what this means. So the biblical text is very specific and very accurate in a lot of different things. The names that we find of the people that arrested Jeremiah, we find their signature elements, these bulas with their names. Now the cool thing about it means is that the names are very specific. I am shy son of Isaac. You are John, son of? Of? Kent. Kent. All right. And there is a likelihood that there's another shy son of Isaac somewhere, another John, son of Kenneth, somewhere out there, right? Well, there's a likelihood that these two guys, though, happen to be together at the same time. Not so much. And in a specific place, of all things, right? Which is the administrative area of the city of David. But more importantly, at the specific period in time. Because that ash can be carbon dated, and we carbon date the ash, the layer of ash in Jerusalem. There are two significant layers of ash. One layer of ash is 586 BC. It's almost undisputed, which means the Babylonian siege, conquest, and destruction of the first temple. And the next layer of ash I'm going to find is going to be from the year 70 AD, which is the Babylonian siege, conquest, and destruction I'm sorry, the Roman siege, conquest, and destruction of the second temple, the great temple that Jesus visited a few decades prior to that. So we're, we're looking at something that is, we have the right time frame, the right location, the right names. So how am I supposed to say that the Bible is inaccurate? 
The Bible is very accurate in the itty bitty little things, itty bitty little details. Why would somebody know this unless they knew this because they were there? If the writer of this text, or the writers of this text, were not present in the area, how would they be able to mark out such itty bitty little unimportant details? What is it important that it's Yochal son of Shalmiyah and Dalia son of Pashchul? Who cares? Why not John, son of Kenneth, and China, you know? Why wouldn't I put my own name in there? But it's very accurate. We find physical evidence of the existence of these people at the time frame and the place in which we're expecting to find it based on the biblical text. That's a big deal. I don't know if you guys are grasping how important this is, but it's a big deal. The city of David is one of the most significant archaeological, archaeological digs that is being conducted in the world today. It's showing us numerous pieces of evidence that are just simply accumulating to the existence of the kingdom of David, of the unified kingdom at large, and more importantly, of the validity of the text. Now, let me clarify what I mean. I'm not trying to say that without this, the Bible is inaccurate, doesn't have validity, or whatnot. All I'm saying is that by finding these things, I can ultimately see how accurate the text really is. And if we approach this from a place of faith, then we don't need it. But if we approach this from a different perspective, then we might, and that's important. That's almost the last piece that I'm showing here. These are some of my favorite, personal favorite pieces, and come back to the original piece that I started with, right, which is this little gold thing at the bottom. All three of these were found in the same area. It's found at the, what we call the Davidson Center, which unfortunately is a site that many groups will skip. I demand, in a way, that every group that I guide in Jerusalem would go to the site. I think it's one of the most important sites in Jerusalem. I think many Christian groups specifically come to Jerusalem in the aim or the aspiration to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, and then is taken to a certain area in Jerusalem and said, this is where Jesus walked. Maybe, but you're now walking on the ground in which he walked. When you understand archaeological mount, you understand that somebody builds, it's destroyed, you build on top, destroyed, you build on top, it's destroyed, you build on top, and there are numerous layers. I use this all the time. You guys know Shrek? You know of Shrek, right? Right, you remember his statement, first Shrek, he's talking to Donkey and he goes, ogres are like onions, right? And then Donkey says, because they make you cry? No. Because they smell bad? No because they have layers, right? Layers is fundamentals. Once you understand the layers of an archaeological dig, you understand everything. So the layers of Jerusalem, if I'm walking on today's layer, couldn't be 2,000 years ago, could it? Couldn't. The Davidson Center, on the other hand, is 2,000 years ago, the street level of Jerusalem. When you walk at the Davidson Center, you walk where they walked, right? But these finds are from the destruction of the temple. The one on the right was actually found at the cornerstone that was thrown down from the great uh, enlargement of the mountain by Herod the Great. And it says on it, Lebeit Hatfila Lehach. We don't have the end of the word. Translate says, to the house of Lebeit Hatfila, Hatkiah, I'm sorry, I mispronounced it. Lebeit Hatkiah Lehach, to the house of the blowing, to do something, right? Blowing the shofar the house being the house of God, blowing the shofar to mark the fact that Shabbat is about to start. A Levite used to stand at the corner, at the very top, blowing the shofar five times to mark the fact that Shabbat is about to start. 
That's where we find it. This is dated to the uh, second temple, end of the second temple era. In other words, let me translate it to what this means. This would be the timeline that we're reading about in the New Testament. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, this is part of the structure, the greatest structure of the external portion of the temple grounds. And it was thrown down by the Romans. It was buried under the rubble. Here it is to us to be found as part of the temple complex. The second piece that I chose to show you is an inscription actually in Greek that is originally from the inner portion of the Temple Mount. It's a fence that used to surround the temple structure itself. And what it reads on it in Greek is something along the lines of, beyond this point, only Jews may enter on pain of death. In other words, people were allowed to come to the greater portion, the outer portion of the temple grounds, even if they weren't Jews. But to enter the perimeter of the temple compound itself, you had to be Jewish. And it's not as if soldiers were standing there with spears trying to stab anybody, but the understanding is that if you were to cross that point and you weren't Jewish, God would smite you. That was the understanding. So we find an inscription that actually marks that, and it was found in the same exact location. Bottom line, this goes back to the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. And the last and final piece is this golden bell. It's a golden bell. It's not just an odd little thing. It's a golden bell. And you ask yourself, why do I care about the golden bell? Because it's very specific who would be wearing a golden bell on their clothing. This is, I would say, not argued. But for argument's sake, let's say 99% coming off the hedges or the trim of the clothing of the high priest as he's walking in this area, because on the fringes of his garment, he had golden pomegranates and golden bells that would mark his place and what's going on. And probably it gets snagged on something and it fell, and we find it in the drain of that street 2,000 years later. These three elements together go back to a timeline. When I'm talking about archaeology, I'm not talking only about the validity of the biblical text in reference to the Old Testament. I'm also talking about the validity of the biblical text in reference to the New Testament. We find numerous items that match what we expect to find when we talk about the New Testament specifically. Um, this is, again, very important. I know it's very difficult to make out. It's an inscription that was found in, Tib- in uh, Caesarea. It has on it a name a very specific name, I'm going to short this and just run through with it, but basically what it says is Antius Pilatus. This is Pontius Pilate that we have as an inscription. Again, this is one of those characters that there wasn't a physical mentioning of him outside the biblical text, same as David, until this piece was found, which proves that he was actually physically walking around there as he placed this to mark the fact that he built a temple in the perimeter. Recently, by the way, during COVID, a family, a Jewish family, was hiking in the area of Herodian, which is another site in in, uh, Israel, and a young boy, I don't remember if it was six, seven, eight, something along those lines, is kicking rocks because he's bored of what they're doing when he kicks something out of the ground. And that something was a coin. That coin happens to have the name of Pontus Pilate on it. So now we have two physical evidence a piece of evidence of Pontius Pilate's existence, which is pretty cool. I mean, COVID, without COVID, we wouldn't have the second one. So, you know, not everything about COVID was bad. Last piece. This is a sarcophagus. has an inscription on it. I'll get to what's actually written on in a second. This is a very famous picture. 
a painting. The Via Dolorosa, the 14 stations of the cross, what is known as the path of suffering, has various elements in it. The fifth station of the Via Dolorosa is where um, Simon of Cyrene starts carrying the cross instead of Jesus. It's marked in Christian art in a variety of different ways. Apparently, Simon of Cyrene is a real character. He actually existed. How do we know this? Because on the sarcophagus, it says Alexander, son of Simon of Cyrene, which is a big deal. And we actually found the sarcophagus of the son of the individual marked as the one who's carrying the cross instead of Jesus. It's not a small thing in any kind of way. And if this doesn't hit you yet as to the significance of these pieces, then I may have done poorly here. <laughs> but the bottom line of what I'm trying to say is, we are obsessed in Israel with the archeology span of what can be seen and what can be found. We are certain that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of additional pieces that have not been found yet. And they will ultimately be found. And if we find them, we find them. If we don't, we don't. Either way, it's not going to take away from your appreciation of the Bible. You either appreciate it or you don't. But for us, it's important because what we're trying to see is how accurate this text really is. When you look at it through a secular prism and not from a religious prism, then you want to check how accurate this really is. If I become utterly convinced that the text is 100% accurate, I'm going to be able to trust it when I search for additional finds. Whereas if I'm not convinced, then I'm going to be skeptical about the validity of the actual elements that are mentioned in the Bible. And one final statement, maybe. So far in the archaeological research of the land of Israel, there has not been a single find that disputes the biblical text. That's a big deal. I'm not saying that in the future this cannot happen. One day we may find an inscription saying, we lied about everything. David is made up. <laughs> One may not happen. So far we don't have it. So far everything we find seems to push towards the idea that the Bible is accurate and true. That's really all I got. Well, did you feel like you uh, drank from a fire hose there for an hour? So, um, so really, it was my privilege, as I said, to be in Israel with Shai um, just a few weeks ago. I felt like I was on a treasure hunt because most of the things that Shai spoke about today, I knew of in advance. And so, you know, I was like, uh, you know, trying to find that sort of, you know, long lost treasure that I had read about, but wanted to see if it was really real. So it was just, it was wonderful to, to go there. In fact, on the last day, we were at the Israel Museum where things like uh, um, the bola are, are displayed there, in, or, or the Tel Dan Stella is, is there. And um, we only had a few minutes at the, at, yes, we at the museum. We had 10. <laughs> but I knew of all these things I wanted to see, and I knew the time periods in which they were, so I was just running around the museum like a kid, you know, trying to find the, the, the Easter egg <laughs> that was sort of hidden behind, behind the tree. So, but I also want to let you know, and this is not something I'm required to do, but Shai, uh, he actually does 
have his own tour group, so his own tour company. So I know that there's groups that from MDPC that go, and you may not be a part of MDPC. You might say, man, I would love to go to, to Israel sometime. I'd even like to take my family or this group. Um, Shai would be a remarkable leader. He was for us. So I just wanted to let you know that. So if, if you're thinking, boy, all this makes me want to go to Israel, um, how can I sort of put together a trip? So I'll probably be going back now. It's just too, it was just too good to not go back. So, um, But uh, um, some of you might want to have your own conversations with Shai, and I just wanted to sort of promote you in that way, Shai. So, so questions that you might have for Shai, and if you do have a question, I want to give you the mic so everybody can hear it. And we're also recording this, so I just want you, everybody that are hearing the recording to hear your question. So who has a question of Shai this morning? So, so amazing presentation. Thanks, Shai. Thanks for being here. Um, there re- was a recent archaeological f- discovery from a, a Houston-based archaeologist, a piece of tin that I believe was re- some of the curses were written on there in, in Hebrew. Are you familiar with that? And can you talk about that? A piece of tin? It, I believe it was a, a piece of tin rolled up and it was... Yeah. We, we actually discussed this a few times when we were in Israel. This, I, I would be careful to discuss an archaeological find that is recent. The way the archaeological field works is that an archaeologist that is digging needs to, current, to continuously raise financial support for the dig. Right? Be it through the state of Israel, through external sources, and they have a tendency to promote fines, um, making them super, super relevant, super important through social media before they're actually thoroughly researched. At the moment, it is unclear if the find is as substantial as it may seem, or is it potentially not? Um, is, it, is it a mistake in an identification? Is it a forgery? Is it the real deal? I would be careful talking about archaeological finds before the report comes out. We need to wait and see what comes out the archaeological report. I know it's boring. These documents are dozens of pages long, very tedious, but ultimately only through reading one of those can we really understand what is the meaning of a true find. It goes back to the same, same concept a few years ago. City of David was pushing out the idea that they found a bula of Isaiah. Right? But it's, it's missing key, key letters. So is it really Isaiah or is it not? To, to the point, I would wait before I had this discussion. So Scott Stripling, who, who declared the find of the curse tablet at Mount Ebal, and why that's significant is in the Bible, we're told both by Moses and by Joshua that, that half of the tribes went to Mount Ebal and they declared curses. And so he's saying that I found this curse tablet with curses on it that date to that period there. So he made that announcement in April, but he said that, that uh, he wouldn't be publishing the results until later this fall. Okay, so we haven't had that report yet to be sort of peer-reviewed. So I think that's really what, what Shai is saying. So it could be a very significant find, but maybe there's reasons that the, the find is not uh, corroborated, or maybe there's, you know, reasons to not put maybe a whole lot of trust match, in it. I'm that's sorry, right. maybe this doesn't match the time period that we're expecting yeah, it to right. be. Maybe the interpretation of the text could be different. It's just a matter of waiting a little bit more and seeing. But if what he's claiming to find is what he found, 
it's incredibly significant. It will definitely be added to this presentation <laughs> for that respect. All right, who else has a question this morning? When was that coffin found? Uh, with Simon of Cyrene? Yeah. Sarcophagus was found a few decades ago, and it wasn't found in Israel. I was cautious. I was debating whether or not to include it. It was originally found north of Israel in what we're nowadays calling Lebanon. So it's not technically an archaeological found that was found in Israel. The reason I included it is because we wanted to show that there's validity of text that is not just the Old Testament. In this case, we allowed ourselves to add a piece that is from outside of Israel. But this is a few decades old. It's not, it's not that new. It's not that old. It's fine. It's there. Most people aren't aware of it. But it's worth it. Just be aware that this is out there. That's the same timeline as the finding of the Stella of David, which is, again, a few decades old. So a lot of it is coming out in the next last 30, 40, 50 years, and some of the finds are coming out in the next 10, 5, or even 1 year in that respect. So it's still worth it. Just, if, if you guys are interested in this, I would say there are a lot of magazines that deal with this on a regular basis, and it's worth it to kind of log in on the Internet and check out what's coming out, because the biblical archaeological aspect of Israel is fascinating. It's continuously changing. Right? One other note about that particular sarcophagus is that it, it's, it doesn't just mention Simon of Cyrene, but it says Alexander, son of si Simon of Cyrene. And Alexander is actually mentioned in Mark. So it wasn't just corroborating Simon, but also corroborating Alexander. And what's interesting, if you read the book of Mark, Alexander does nothing. He's a completely insignificant person. He just happens to be the son of Simon, who was the one who carried the cross. So even in that instance, the sarcophagus is validating the fact that not only was Simon a real person, but even this insignificant person that happens to be mentioned in Scripture um, was a historical character. Along the lines of uh, David or Pontius Pilate, are there other significant figures of the Old Testament where there's no proof that they existed? Many. I mean, our bottom line is many. Where do we have physical evidence of Abraham's existence? Outside the text. Outside the actions that we see. How do we, how do we go around proving that Abraham was actually there, for one, right? Joshua. I mean, there are numerous characters that when you look at Moses, even in that respect, there's no physical evidence of the existence of Moses. How do we go around proving or disproving the existence of these characters is not necessarily what the focus should be, although it has become to some extent. The truth is that most of us live our lives and we do not leave a significant mark behind. Only specific individuals will. So the fact that we don't find evidence of Moses or don't find Abraham or of Joshua or a variety of other characters doesn't mean that they didn't exist. But when we do find evidence of their existence, it's a big deal. Does that make sense? I would say the majority of the biblical characters that we've become familiar with and kind of love reading about don't have physical evidence. It's, and that's okay. They just didn't leave anything behind. You know, if you consider the number of people that are in Scripture, there's thousands, really, that are mentioned. So, so we certainly wouldn't expect to find all of them. So, um, but we do find, like, you, you showed all those bolas there. And you mentioned Hezekiah, and you mentioned the two men out of Jeremiah. We actually have bolas for 30 different characters in, in the Old Testament. So that's pretty significant, right? Like, we have these markers, these historical markers of Old Testament figures. So who else has a question? 
So what is the proper name of the um, the silver benediction that the, the priestly benediction made of silver that was rolled up? What is that proper name? What do you what's that reference? The I mean like you have the Dead Sea Scrolls and this is the what? Is there a piece of silver with the <laughs> What does it mean? Yeah, what is the name? Well how do you refer to that? It's the priestly benediction. It's it's known as the priestly benediction or the Ben Hinnom scrolls. The, the location in which they were found is a valley in Jerusalem known as Ben-Hinnom. Ben-Hinnom is mentioned in the Bible, but that's besides the point. And they are known as the Ben-Hinnom Silver Scrolls or the um, Priestly Benediction. That, that's the naming of these, these finds if you're looking for them. And they were found originally by Gabi Barkai, so if this helps you find it, you can find it that way. Are you asking about what is the significance or what is the name? No, I was asking, is there, is there an official ref- name? Rather than the description, so that's I think, a, I think okay. that's it. Okay. I think that's what you would look for. The second question is: you did you ever did you ever were you ever engaged in the archaeological side, or have you always been on the tour side, or what was your interest in that? You're asking if I've ever dug. I've I've only participated in digs when my groups have participated in digs. So we have two digs in Israel that are they're not open to the public, but you can join in. And whenever one of my groups joins in, I join in too. I've been on numerous digs. I've been on numerous digs with the archaeologists, but I'm not an archaeologist. And if this came out that way, then let me just clarify it. Far from me to be the guy who actually digs and finds these things. I just talk. <laughs> they do all the hard lifting. All right, who else? Who else has a question this morning? Hmm. Here's your chance. <laughs> hmm. Bobby, did you have a question? Okay. So just on a practical archaeological question, so how far do they allow them to dig? I mean, when, if there's infinite money to do the dig, does it, at some point they say, this is enough, you're going to start messing with integrity? Fantastic question. Um, University of Chicago actually tried digging an entire site, all the layers. Thankfully, they ran out of funds. But we, what happens in an archaeological dig is that when you remove a layer, you've basically destroyed it. Right? It's taken apart, put somewhere else. It no longer has the same validity as when you have the place on site. So once an archaeologist finds something very substantial, they're going to be very cautious. They're going to leave it there. They're not going to dig underneath it. Most archaeologists today will not dig an entire site. They will dig a portion, and they will on purpose leave a portion for the next generation of archaeologists. The truth is that the technology has changed greatly. Now, back in the day, they used to kick around, and just if they found anything substantial just by kicking the ground up, they will decide, here's why I'm digging. There's just too many pottery shards, too many things, I'm digging here. Nowadays, they do ground-penetrating radar with drones, before they ever start digging. So now they look for substantial walls in the ground, and then they decide, I'm digging here. Uh, this is what looks like a gate, I'm going to dig here. In the future, the technology could be more advanced, and the archaeologists are aware of it, and so they choose cautiously to dig this area, but don't touch this area at all. They don't just dig the whole thing up. But in theory, if they were to have unlimited funding, there was a site called Tel Shimran, who everybody knows is an incredibly significant site. It's estimated in dozens of layers. And the Museum of the Bible, years ago, was involved in the idea of uh, funding this future dig. 
For the moment, it's still frozen. It, nobody's touching it. But when they had the original plan, they were supposed to have a um, researcher for every significant layer, and they didn't tend to dig the entire site. It was a massive undertaking. It's in the tens of millions of dollars to fund this thing. And uh, they decide not to go along with it at the end. So for the moment, we don't know what's going on. But in theory, if somebody was willing to put down, let's say, half a billion dollars to dig a site, State of Israel would probably allow them to dig it thoroughly. And if they did it, who knows what we'll find. You know, it's a lot of money. So you mentioned the two evidences of ash in Jerusalem in 586 uh, from the Babylonians in the 70 AD. Is there anything similar to that that's been found significantly to prove the uh, Assyrian takeover of the northern kingdom? Anything 100%, like yes. Uh, when what? you go to the site of Megiddo, for instance, which we were at, you see the layer of destruction from the Assyrian conquest and it's not just in Megiddo. But in Megiddo specifically, you see a layer of destruction, and you see a construction of an Assyrian layer on top of the destruction. So when they're going through the site, and they dug through the site, they found what they're calling the Assyrian layer. So not only did the Assyrian destroy the place, but they actually built their own layer. The difference is going to be in the significance of the ash layer, right? It needs to be a massive destruction for this to create a massive ash layer. And in the Pilgrim's Road that they're digging up in Jerusalem right now, as we speak, you can actually, as you walk, you can see the layer of ash following you on the wall, and it's about this thick. So you can, with your fingernail, just pull out, you know, 2,000-year-old ash, and who knows what it comes from. It's unbelievable. In uh, Megiddo, it doesn't exist. The layer of ash is a little bit less pronounced. But remember, the Assyrians did not satisfy themselves with the northern kingdom. They ultimately tried to conquer the southern kingdom. They failed to conquer Jerusalem. But numerous sites in the Judean area, or in the kingdom of Judea, were destroyed by the Assyrians. And we find layers of destruction that match the Assyrian conquest in many, many sites in the surrounding portion of Jerusalem. So yes, 100%. And just to note, too, that we have historical records from the Assyrians as well. So, so we don't just have the biblical record, we don't just have the, sort of the archaeological sites, but we also have the uh, uh, sort of the records of Sennacherib as well. So the enemy sort of declaring that he conquered those areas at those times. So. Thanks. Thanks again for the presentation. <clears throat> A practical question. You said some of these digs have been going on for decades. So are there just certain seasons during which you can dig and, and you can't dig like 24-7 every day of the year or? Yes, the, the simple answer would be yes. But if you want a little bit more information, then the weather in Israel is problematic. The certain times of the summer season is going to be too hot. It's going to be very difficult to actually dig. There's a new dig that is being, taking place on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, claiming to be the actual site of Bethsaida. If you're familiar with Bethsaida, the German archaeologists researched the, a site that they called Bethsaida decades ago. Now, a team um, is trying to discover the real Bethsaida. And again, they have ultimately dealing with a lot of different issues. One, the water level of the Sea of Galilee rises and descends on certain times of the year. 
they can't dig when the place is ultimately flooded. It's impossible. Two, uh, when it's really, really hot, that area is one of the hottest areas of the country, you can't really dig. So they dig between 4 a.m. and 10 a.m., right, in the hottest season, and then basically they sit in the shade and try to figure out what it is that they found, um, but they can't do it all year long. Funding-wise, it's insane. You have to have a lot of money in order to actually fund this. When, again, the Museum of the Bible had this crazy notion, they wanted to have um, live cameras on site at Tel Shimran, and they wanted to broadcast 24-7 so that you'd be able to observe the site from afar from anywhere in the world at any given moment. So, I mean, in theory, you could dig whenever you wanted, but the truth is that you're still digging by hand. So it starts with shovels, and then you move on to small brushes, and if it's a really significant find, a potential find, then you're working with toothbrushes. So I mean, imagine being on your knees and your hands in uh, 120 degrees, uh, no, 70% humidity, and you're on your knees trying to brush away something. It's just amazing what these people do. So no, it's, uh, they do have seasons. All right, who else? Does somebody else have a hand up? Did they miss? Mm -hmm. All right, Brad, another one. Okay. Just a couple more minutes here. What, what might be the greatest evidence, archaeologically speaking, of Solomon's temple, if, if anything? Is there anything that's... Ooh, what could prove Solomon's temple? It's going to be big, right? It has to be very big. What if we found the pillars that the Bible mentions were at the entrance? Right? Boaz and Yachin. That could be super cool. Another thing that could be is, look, if we were to dig today underneath what is known as the Dome of the Rock, which is the third most important Muslim site in the world, so just to clarify, it would be challenging. <laughs> um, for a fact, based on what we've already found, we're going to find remnants from the second temple period, as in Herod's temple. But if we dig underneath that, are we going to find the second temple that was originally built by Israel Nehemiah. And if we build on it that, will we find the first temple period? That's, that's going to be amazing, right? But to do that, we've got to remove all of that. That's going to be, as I said, challenging, to say the least. Um, Ark of the Covenant. At least in our understanding, based on the biblical text, the Ark of the Covenant is no longer present uh, during the second temple era. It's not there. And the question is, where is it? All right? Ethiopians are claiming that it was given to Solomon's favorite son, Menelik, who's his son with Queen Sheba, for safekeeping. And it's actually kept today at a church in Ethiopia, which is guarded by an Ethiopian Christian high priest. And it's, no, it's not on display ever, but he's the only one that can access it. If we were given permission to research that Ark of the Covenant and see, for one, what is the age of that artifact, and two, what it potentially contains within, that could be huge. Not just much, huge. Um, so that would be something that I would kind of look forward to, you know. Uh, what's the movie I'm thinking of right now? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Thank you. <laughs> you got to be careful, though, with what happens then, yeah? <laughs> uh, well, all right. One more question here, if anybody's got one. So. All right. How's what? How are your twins? 
My twins are amazing. <laughs> amazing, like humans. They're small people asking big people questions. <laughs> Conversation we have sometimes is crazy. One of them turns to me a few days ago, just before I flew over, I was about to read a bedtime story, and I picked out this book, and she looks at me and she says, I like this book. I said, I don't know this book. I don't remember we bought this book. She said, yes, we bought it without you. <laughs> I said, really, I missed that? She says, yes, you miss a lot. <laughs> maybe you should consider, she says to me, like six-year-old, she says, maybe you should consider staying home more because you're really missing too much. <laughs> like, really? Okay. <laughs> They're doing great. Their mouth just keeps on going. <laughs> well, one of the, you have to get the line right, Shai, but one of the things that I enjoyed you telling us about your daughters is that you said that uh, at times you would say, um, you know, this is what our forefathers tell us or whatever. Yeah. So, and you've taught them that when you say that, they're to stop everything and listen very carefully. So maybe you can explain. I, I, didn't, I didn't so much teach it as something that happened. Like I took them to Tell Dan. I mentioned Tell Dan a few times during COVID. I was playing around with this technology. I was shooting sites in 360 tech. And, you know, I, I used that as an excuse to drag my entire family with me to archaeological sites. So we went to Tel Dan, and these three-and-a-half-year-olds are sitting there on the steps looking at the, the re deconstructed altar of Dan. And I started talking to them. I explained to them, same as I would explain to you. Sa same level of information, by the way. And I said, I said the key sentence. I said, this is from the time of our forefathers. In Hebrew, zemazman shelavot avoteinu. And I didn't realize what I did this. Um, apparently, I primed them. Whenever now they hear forefathers in Hebrew, avot avoteinu, everything stops for them. They're shoo, zoomed in. And we've visited the city of David, and we've visited Megiddo, and we've visited numerous archaeological sites since then. And whenever it's important, it's enough for me to say avot avoteinu, they are 100% engaged. Unbelievable to witness a six-year-old on Temple Mount, right outside the third most important mosque in the world, asking me, questions that adults a lot of times are not still there. She turns to me and she says, so I don't understand why the Muslims and the Jews are fighting about the site. Why can't we all have it? Six-year-old, right? Clear as day, yelling this out loud in front of <laughs> numerous Muslims and so forth on Temple Mount and, you know, this bizarre setting because I said Temple Mount and they listened to me talking about Temple Mount for an hour, an hour about the history of the site. Ultimately, this is what she comes up with and I didn't realize who was around us. A gentleman comes up to me and says, in, in Hebrew, he says, look, we would love to allow these beautiful girls to go inside the mosque and see it, which is not allowed. What? It's just not allowed. And I said, how are you going to do this? He says, well, you know, we can petition special um, permission and we will let you go inside and see it. Because I want it to be clear to your beautiful girls that we would love it for them to see it. And this six-year-old just made that change. It's unbelievable. So it's avot avoteinu. Jews are not allowed <laughs> inside <laughs> the mosque. So that's an incredible invitation there. Yep, Steve. I I think you should show them the map of Israel. Yeah. 
It's very true. I use it all the time. It's, it's a great reference point. So this is physically Israel, the way I'm standing right now. This is what Israel looks like. This is the finger of the Galilee. This is Syria, Lebanon, Mediterranean coast, Egypt, Jordan, right? This is the Golan Heights. This is the Galilee. This is the highest mountain in the Galilee. <laughs> Perfectly positioned, by the way. Sea of Galilee, Jordan Valley, Dead Sea, Jerusalem is your belly button, Tel Aviv, Caesarea, Haifa, it's all, it's all there. It's really cool. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody, for coming this morning. I know it was a little bit of an odd time. For some of you, it was early. Some of you, it was late for the things that you do. But I really appreciate you, again, making the effort to, to come after. Shai will be here for a few minutes. I've got to run him to the airport after that. But uh, um, again, thank you for being here this morning. And thank you, Shai, so much for your time this morning. Thank you, folks. Thank you for having me.